Thanks so much for listening to another element of the Element podcast. I feel like I'm getting worse. Two years you in. I, yeah. Did you just say you are? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's your open. everybody. Welcome to The Human Element, Kara's podcast on modern marketing. I am beyond excited. One of the great gifts of this pod is to have people come back, especially people that were such amazing guests the first time around. Dylan Collins, CEO at Super Awesome, your second appearance. I'm so pumped. Thank you for coming back. Well, thanks for having me again, Robert. So in addition to having one of the best voices we've ever had on the pod, you were one of the best guests. So this should be a good one. And we have a lot to cover. Let's dive in with the topical. I've already been warned by your massive PR department that I need to be behaved here in this question. You recently announced, as in good grief, less than a week, you guys are being acquired by a little company called Epic Games. They've had a little bit of success. And what I want to do is sort of get your perspective on that and sort of what you think it means, not just for you guys in particular, but but for your part of the industry. Mm. Well, you know, we've, we've known Epic for some time um, as a customer. And, you know, when the opportunity came around to actually partner together, you know, we began to realize, you know, just how similar our views on the world were in terms of privacy, in terms of the importance of kids, in terms of the importance of parents. It was sort of one of those opportunities where the more we looked at it, the more we realized just how unique I think the opportunity was going to be to work with Epic, you know, to achieve our mission to make the internet safer for kids. So, you know, as, as part of the deal, we stay as a standalone business. Uh, so obviously very, very focused on, you know, continuing to build out our tools for kids safe advertising and parental consent. I do think it's a very, very significant milestone for the entire kid tech sector. I think it really sends a signal about just how important, you know, safely and responsibly engaging with kids is for everybody, you know, whether yeah. you're a developer, a content owner or a brand. So yeah, look, we're, we're very, very pleased with the outcome and incredibly pleased to be, you know, doing this with Tim Sweeney and the Epic team. It's going to be a lot of fun. So congratulations. It's super exciting and we're we're happy for you. We invited you to be back on the pod prior to that announcement. So we, it just shows how good we are. You, you know, our audience doesn't often ask us for things like stock picks or predict the future or gambling tips, but we really should be consulted. That's how good we are in predicting the future. But the reason why we invited you was we follow each other on Twitter and you had done a little thread earlier in the month around how you had sort of a hypothesis that some of the things you saw emerging in the kids' privacy space had real implications potentially for the broader market. And it just, mm -hmm. it struck me. And so that was sort of the motivating reason why I was like, you know what, let's get Dylan on the pot again and have a conversation. So A, what kinds of things are changing and what prompted that observation that you made? Well, there's been a few interesting things happening over the last, let's call it, couple of months. And let me see if I can do this in order. I think, you know, the UK just rolled out, recently rolled out the age-appropriate design code, yep. you know, which is for, for your audience, it, it's sort of like the UK version of COPPA. It is sort of a, an interpretation of how GDPR works in Europe. And so essentially that puts in place a series of protections for children that are engaging with any kind of digital service. 
the reason this was so interesting and sort of taking it above sort of just kind of the, the all the policy nerds out there was that for the first time, this was, you know, digital law for kids that was going beyond just data privacy. So it wasn't just saying you cannot track children and it was going beyond children under 13. It actually goes all the way up to 18. But what's mm. really interesting, what was the real milestone was that this law was putting in place, you know, requirements for user interface. Mm. You know, and we've never seen that before in any of the laws. Like up until this point, you know, COPPA in the US and GDPRK in Europe, very much been focused on digital privacy, extremely important. But now we're also seeing sort of the recognition that, you know, when you are creating apps or services or any kind of digital environment for kids, you really have to think holistically about how they are interacting because what is suitable for an 18-year-old, a 25-year-old, a 38-year-old is not necessarily going to be suitable from a user interface perspective, yeah. you know, for a seven-year-old or for an eight-year-old. So from a legal point of view, that was a huge step forward. Yeah, and that's a big deal, right? Like that, that has massive implications because one of the, and again, this is, you know, my basic summary. But one of the things that is differentiating about whether it's gaming or new media or the social platforms or, you know, anyone who's building a digital experience is the experience itself and how right, right. comprehensive that can be in driving differentiation for mm. a brand. Mm. And you're right, there hasn't been a whole lot of incursion into that from a regulatory perspective. Mm. And the amount of control that some of these organizations kind of exert both directly and indirectly because they get to control the entire experience right, is, is right. significant. Right. So seeing that even have any kind of encroachment from a, a regulatory angle or from a set of, you know, standards or goals, that is a big change. I think it's huge. And, and I mean, I think you got to bear in mind that when the first of these children's laws came along or were sort of updated, I suppose, in 2013 in the U.S., realistically, the only companies that had to pay any attention to them were the biggest kids content names in the world you know yeah. so if you were a disney if you were a cartoon network you were absolutely compliant you know but almost everyone else didn't think it was going to be applicable for them and and you know you think over over the course of seven years you know which is a relatively short space of time i suppose you know you now have these laws and not only are they applicable to to self-identified kids content but with this new law in the uk it applies to any digital service that might reasonably be expected to be used by kids, which is broad, yeah. but it reflects the usage of the internet. I mean, like sure. 10 years ago, I mean, you know, I mean, you've heard me say this before, Robert, like the internet was designed by adults for adults, you know, yep. but now we've got a situation where 40% of it is under 16, yep. right? So I think for anyone who is a content owner, a brand, you know, a service provider, if you are building something, you know, you now by default have to consider kids as being part of your audience and, and sort of design and scope accordingly. And I think that's a huge, huge shift. Yeah, and you're right. We did, you know, a lot of our first pod got into that sort of discussion for sure. This idea, there was sort of another component piece around this idea of banning behavioral advertising targeting yeah, for teens. I'm trying to sort of verbalize my tweet storm. The second of three was exactly as you described, right? It was this initiative called the Global Action Plan, which was a consortium of various groups and quite UK and Europe centered. They were calling on a total ban for behavioral advertising 
in teams. Yep. And what was so interesting about that was that that's really the first movement that we have seen you know, outside of the US. And again, a lot of this stuff is, is reflecting what has been happening in the US over the last few years. You know, but it's the first movement where you know, you've got a group of people coming out saying, you know, kids and teens, you know, so we're talking about all the way up to 18, you know, they have the right to privacy even in their advertising. You know, so yeah. contextual advertising is fine, right? Yeah. But anything that's behavioral, you know, that's starting to sort of infringe on their digital civil liberties. And, yeah. and again, just as a sort of a marker for, a, you know, the general movement and direction of travel, I thought that was a fascinating development. Yeah, well, it's a gigantic development. And again, when you view it through the context of the platforms making material changes, whether it's a cookie-less world or whether it's IDFA or whether like there's a mm -hmm. lot of momentum yeah. in the industry in different directions with regard to how behavioral can even be done or mm -hmm. if it can be done. And right. so when you put it in the context of that greater whole, you know, look, let's be clear, that's a massive challenge for brands. It's a massive challenge for the social platforms, you know, anyone that's that's driving advertising revenue on their platforms. Yeah. I'm feeling in a in a sort of a, you know, forward thinking predictive kind of move, Robert. So I, I love so that I'm, this is this like, is great. I, I feel some predictions like they're coming. They're coming. And I, All I, right, think, I love it. Like I think within <laughs> I think within three years, right? Yeah. Within 36 months, you are gonna see a major country ban behavioral advertising specifically to Oof. teens, right? I mean, technically it's banned now for under 13, right? For yep. digital privacy laws. But I think we are going to see a country and, and it's it's amazing to see sort of how progressive the UK is being in this regard. Yep. But I think they are going to ban it on the basis that it is infringing kids' civil liberties online. And so let me ask you a stupid, naive question. What's the difference between the civil liberties of an 18-year-old and the civil liberties of a 20-year-old? Well, this is where it starts to look like a slippery slope, right? <laughs> and I mean, you think about like what all this has been constructed on, right? So, you know, the reason you, that like the history behind children's digital privacy laws, which now every advertiser knows about, right? That goes back to 1998, and the original premise that Senator Markey was trying to get passed was actually a digital privacy law for everyone. Yep. And that got pushed back almost instantly. And they went, well, let's try for a kid's privacy law because sure. surely no one can argue with that, right? Yep. And so what we've seen over the years is sort of that foundation being built upon. And I think with all of the attention and the negativity around you know, what is being done with personal data in general and, and, and behavioral targeting and the intersection with politics, you know, everyone is now beginning to, to sort of follow this, you know, it's a big tobacco-like narrative. Exactly. Where, where, where it's, it's the same, like we saw this right in the 70s and 80s yep. and 90s, right? It's like smoking goes from being fine, acceptable to I can't believe we ever did that. Yep. And it's the same approach that we're now you know, seeing with persistent behavioral data and how it's been used for advertising in, in what is deemed to be sort of a generally unfair kind of way. And that sort of brings me to the third thing that happened, sure. which was a effectively a class action lawsuit that was brought against YouTube in the UK for two and a half billion pounds, so roughly about $3 billion, Again, for precisely the same thing, alleging the capture of personal data on children under 13. And again, that reflected what YouTube 
had settled with the FTC for last year for exactly the same thing. They settled for $170 million, which is a magnitude smaller than what's being claimed here. <laughs> a magnitude. Yeah, I mean, it's it just shows that none of this is going away and it's getting bigger and bigger. And I think, final point, and I will stop talking, I promise, in one second, like the really interesting thing here, and I haven't seen any analysts do the work on it, is that when you start to take teams out of your addressable market, yeah. For a business model that's driven by behavioral advertising, like Facebook specifically, what does that start to do to your market cap? Yep. I mean, it's definitely not the end of the business at all, no. but it's, it begins to get material. Well, it might be if you're Snap. Might be if you're Snap. There's a few companies out there. You know, <laughs> the, who, who and we're going to get to TikTok in two seconds, <laughs> in two ticks. A couple things. One, I think your analogy to big tobacco as a as an example of how quickly things kind of moved. And again, I'm not trying to make a, a moral equivalency exactly on that because that's sure, a different yeah. thing. But the way things moved, and then you know, when you bring up sort of the litigation, the exponential sort of expansion of the, you know, the size of the litigation mm. is interesting too. And I think there's a corollary there, right? So I remember when we talked about the FTC settlement, the 170 million, that was by a wide margin, the most gigantic settlement, right? Like at the time, mm, for sure. that was yeah. a big deal. Yeah, yeah. And now here we are talking about the potential, again, potential mm -hmm. for something that is, you know, orders of magnitude bigger mm -hmm. than that. Mm -hmm. That's interesting, right? That's really interesting. I suppose the boiling a frog analogy kind of comes to mind, right? Where like, <laughs> All of this has been going on, you know, around us within the industry. And, yeah. and I think you've suddenly got, I know with a lot of our conversations with customers, you're, you know, every time you see something like this, customers come in running going, we need to take this even more seriously, right? Yeah. And we're now at a stage where I just can't see any brand that is active in, let's call it the under 20 audience who's not thinking about this in some shape or form. I mean, either the ones that are operating specifically in the regulated audiences, which are under 13 and under 16, but as this is now becoming a topic that is being discussed by the kids themselves, yep. right? Like one of the things that I think is still underrated is that when YouTube got fined last year and they moved, it must be said, sort of very responsibly to then overhaul YouTube, you know, and reallocate and recategorize a lot of content, they ended up sort of demonetizing a lot of YouTube creators. And what that did was lead to sort of a huge amount of video creation by the same creators talking about COPPA. And yep. that ended up unintentionally being the biggest FTC marketing campaign that we've ever seen because you had tens of millions of dollars effectively being spent in media to talk about COPPA. It was amazing. I'm sure that the government is savvy enough to like claim that that was the exact intention, right? <laughs> I've seen the senators in Washington. They know exactly what they're doing. They can claim the credit. But, but my point is that like, again, this is moving from a topic around, yeah. you know, that was previously just, you know, lawyers and policymakers to one that, that, that the kids themselves are now very conversant in. You know, that really changes the calculus and the whole thing. So I want to do two things very quickly because I do want to get to TikTok because that to me is a, a fascinating space on like mm. 27 different levels. But before we do that, you mentioned client conversations. What are the most striking moments of the client conversations you've had over the past couple months? What sticks out? 
what a year it's been, right? I mean, I think <laughs> Q2 for everybody was a huge amount of customers who are consumer facing trying to figure out what should they do or not do. And should should they wait? Should they hold off? Should they engage? And I think just about everyone everyone sort of got over that. I think there was another wave, you know, which was companies and you know services that weren't deliberately in the kids and family space suddenly being almost taken hostage by kids mm. and families. Right. So I mean, you know, the obvious examples of companies like Zoom, Zoom, you know, which which were essentially just hijacked by everybody, never designed for kids, never designed for families, and suddenly having to think about all of this stuff, you know. And I think as as we've kind of come out of that into Q3, you know, you are seeing sort of the notion of normality or at least an acceptance of of what we currently have being normality by a lot of these companies, but they are certainly being much more mindful about safety, about family, about parental involvement, you know, than they have been before for various reasons. And I think that's driven by a lot of different things. One of the the under-discussed topics of school lockdowns has been that it has brought parents much closer to kids in terms of understanding what they're really doing on screens, you know. And parents will argue that that's not entirely um, by choice, but the outcome is still, and we've actually we actually see it on on the data when you look at all the parental consents that are being given. Parents are coming out of this much more informed, which means they are simply paying more attention. And and I think there is this awakening by brands and by agencies that you have to be seen to be more responsible and indeed even more ethical than you were before for various reasons. I think that's a really interesting and powerful observation, especially the the ethical bit, right? Because we mm-hmm. live in a oh, we live in a moment that is ethically confused. Let's call it that. That's a good description. That is an additional challenge for brands to try to sort that bit out right now. Yeah. Have you seen any connection point or any implication to especially that teen audience? as it relates to the conversations around equity and social justice that are sort of launching in America and kind of spreading in some way on a more global level? Has there been dialogue about the implications of those things in that audience? It's a really interesting question, Robert. I mean, we have definitely seen kind of what we call Generation C, which is kids between the ages of 6 and 16 who are the most impacted by everything that's going on. And particularly, I would say, sort of, you know, in the 12, 13, 14, 15 range, because they are having to spend more time at home and they become sort of ahead of their time, a fully fledged member of the household, they are being given and being treated with much more responsibility than I think they were pre-COVID. And that seems to be coming. And again, this is sort of partially quantitative, partially anecdotal. This is definitely coming with, I think, a greater sense of understanding about what's going on in the world. You know, and to your point about ethics and 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 also I think sustainability. You've got a lot of these trends that are starting to coalesce in this generation. And you can argue whether or not it would have happened without COVID, but it certainly is present and it is getting it has the feeling, is the early feeling of a movement. It's yeah. hard to know exactly what that's going to manifest as, but when you see how you know, whether it's sort of kids taking up the BLM movement or everything that's going on in North America at the moment, it seems to be resonating in a way that it never was before. I think we're still pretty early on that, but it's 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 growing, I feel. I agree with you. 
this is not a revolutionary thought. There's been a, a level of increasing consciousness, I think, from millennials downward. Mm-hmm. And when you look at sort of this next generation, whether it's C or whatever we're calling, you know, whatever mm-hmm. my correct name should be for them, the age at which awareness of these fundamental issues comes, the sophistication and depth of understanding of these issues is just completely different, mm. completely different for any other generation. I don't even think it's measurably close. Mm-hmm. And so the question then is, what does that mean? Right? What are the implications of that? You know, I've long felt that this generation was going to be one of the most disruptive for the existing sort of digital status quo you know, because again, you think about what they're growing up into, you know, in terms of the environment, you know, the one that's, as we talked about, driven by by behavioral and data and driven by almost everything that is the antithesis of who they are, you know, and, and I really feel like that in 10 years time, you know, the dominant platforms or many of the dominant platforms will not be the names that we know today. And I know it's like anyone listening to this is probably going to go, you know, Google and Facebook and Snap are going to be around forever. But like this is cyclical. Like, I mean, we were like you could go back in time 10 or 15 or 20 years and you could make the same argument about several brands that are no longer around or are very, very small, you know, driven by another wave of disruption. So I think it's a very interesting time. Yeah, it's a super interesting topic. There's a whole pod that we're going to do on that. I'm not sure when we're going to do it, Dylan, but you and I are going to do a pod on, you know, those brands that we have lost and mm-hmm. those brands that are massive now that we'll join them. We'll place some bets. It's going to be a very popular podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Sign me up. I'm there. Let's get to TikTok. Yeah, speaking so, of. Yeah, speaking of. So they've had a heck of a couple months without sort of pushing you in a particular direction because I have places I want to go. What is your perspective on where do they sit right now, right? Post this kind of very convoluted, very difficult to understand ownership, mm. semi-transfer, mm. not real control, who knows what's happening kind of agreement. Mm. And then what are the implications for where they go? So let's start sort of on what, what was the agreement and, and what does it actually mean? Because boy, it's the more that comes out, it's a little confusing to say the least. Well, if you can't figure it out, I can't figure it out. <laughs> I mean, look, I think it has turned into an exercise in some kind of political expediency, yeah. you know, to try and probably just get it off the agenda, quite frankly. You know, I always felt that TikTok represented the battle that was going on between the East and the West for who was going to win young video viewers and young yep. video creators. And the, the only thing was that the West didn't realize they were in a battle, you know, it's a fascinating outcome then that, you know, when you try and sort of dive into exactly what the structure is, you know, in terms of who owns TikTok and who's controlling it, who won, right? Yeah. To be honest, I still can't. And I've listened to, like, I've read several articles on it, I've listened to a couple of podcasts, and I still can't tell which side of this article is coming out on and, and sort of, you know, did ByteDance want this outcome or not? But, I mean, I think we are seeing... It represents the clash of, you know, companies that are as powerful or more powerful or as influential as countries. I think it represents, you know, as I said at the beginning, sort of the leadership from the East and specifically in China of, 
you know, consumer digital services. Yep. And there's probably a couple of other macros in there. I, I think also on another level, we really are seeing the, you know, the, the crystallizing of boundaries between the major technology companies, you know, because strategically, a lot of these big companies were always going to bump up against each other. And yep. for years, they've sort of been trying to stay diplomatic. Yep. But it gets to a stage where, you know, and you see this in, in operating systems and platforms and things like that, where they really are starting to get much more aggressive. Yep. And I think you have all of these three things sort of almost acting at once within the TikTok situation. I think that's a really thoughtful and articulate way of, of putting it, you know, and it literally ties back into the thing we just talked about, which is this sort of much more acute aggression between these massive players moving out of their, you know, traditional pillars into different places is going to yield to some are going to make it, some aren't, some are going to be damaged and go do it like that. This is, this is where the, you know, this is where the, the battle begins to some extent. And I do think it's informative, you know, we don't have a lot of the data here, right? Like the U.S. government's role in this was complicated, not terribly transparent and odd to say the mm. least. Mm. But if you just look at who was involved potentially, you know, by rumor in the bidding process, Right. We heard obviously Microsoft was involved. They've admitted it publicly. Oracle was involved because they subsequently wound up with some portion of the entity. Walmart, you know, obviously in there. But then there were, you know, fairly, I think, decently sourced rumors around Apple and, you know, mm. Twitter at one point was sort of mentioned. Just interesting to see who is involved in, you know, potentially participating in this discussion because many of those companies, you know, Microsoft, Apple, and Twitter, for example, have fundamentally different entry points and worldviews on these things, and yet they're kind of colliding in this mm -hmm. moment. And Oracle, for Pete's sake, is, you know, let's be honest, God bless Oracle, kind of from left field. So mm -hmm. it is interesting to see how the collision is happening. I think that's a really good point. The other thing to your point, which I think is deeply fascinating, and we don't have time to get into it, but boy, it is, you know, put a pin in it. At some point in time, these massive platforms in the East are going to take a swing at moving westward. Mm -hmm. And that is where we will have some interesting conflict between some of the existing social platforms, whether that's Facebook or Google or wherever. And boy, that's going to get interesting fast. It's almost like this was, to your point, a trial balloon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It certainly played out that way. And, and I, I think that like the presence of Walmart in that conversation was fascinating, you know, yep. because, you know, when you look at how much e-commerce has been driven from social platforms and, you know, yet how much of that social stack, I suppose, that most of the e-commerce companies simply don't own, you know, it, it starts to kind of make you wonder why they're not being much more aggressive in that regard. I mean, obviously Amazon owned Twitch, which is, you know, one of the smartest acquisitions in the last decade, I would say. But, you know, when you, when you think about the amount of consumption data that's been generated there and what someone like a Walmart could do with it, you know, I, I think that's fascinating. I think it's still worth saying that, like, in the scheme of things around where and how people purchase anything, we're still pretty early from an e-commerce point of view. I you know? agree completely. And there's, there's a lot of, you know, huge digital empires to be built. So I think 
like anything, this will probably make an awful lot of companies sit back and reassess their strategy, you know, for what they're going to be doing in 21 and 22 in terms of video, in terms of community, in terms of e-commerce. It's a thoughtful time for everyone. So last question on TikTok. Is there a privacy issue for teens and kids on TikTok? Well, it keeps coming up. You know, they've done a lot of work on trying to to be mindful around privacy requirements for kids, right? And and I think it's it's absolutely fair to say that that ByteDance have invested a lot more heavily in it today than they had sort of four or five years ago. I think the probably one of the biggest challenges for brands, you know, engaging on TikTok is that, you know, on, on any of these general audience platforms, you're going to have brand safety challenges. On TikTok, you've also got geopolitical brand safety challenges. And when you've got, you know, a platform that is being driven so effectively by an under 13 audience, you know, you really sort of have to go in their eyes open. So I think they're getting a lot better at managing all of that. But ultimately, you know, I I think for any platform that operates at this scale, you are just having to do the platform owner so much more thinking that many people consider not reasonable, but they would just have to because of the sheer like scale of the thing. You have to do the thinking for everybody, you know, for your customer, for for the consumer, for the client, for the advertiser. And almost every company historically has underinvested in that level of thinking, right? In terms of brand protection and brand sure. safety. Yeah. TLDR, they're getting better, but yep. you know, eyes open for everybody. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, you know, look, we're still having massive and correct conversations, you know, with Facebook around Mm. fundamentally how safe it is. And Facebook's been around, you know, whatever, 15, 18 years, whatever it is. Mm. So I think that's a reflection that, you know, platforms as nascent as TikTok still is, we can't fool ourselves into thinking that it's been thought through because it just hasn't, right? It just, it just hasn't. Awesome. All right. Let's jump ahead. We sit... 34, two days from a little bit of an election here in the United States. Mm -hmm. And it has, you know, in its wake so far, that massive ocean liner has churned up a lot of stuff. It has run squarely into social justice implications here in the country. It has run squarely into things like hate speech and hate groups in a way that they are or are not managed by the big social platforms, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I guess my question is, from a kid's perspective, how big of a problem is health sort of disinformation for kids, be it anti-vaccination orientation, be it, you know, related to mental health? Like, I worry about this. I don't know if I'm the only one, but like, how much of that is an issue amongst these younger populations at this point? And if it is a problem, what can be done? It's a really interesting question, Robert. And I think it's one that doesn't come up enough. And I would proxy it out to the question of how and where do kids get their news from, right? Which is like, as adults, you know, we're pretty conscious of right-wing, left-wing bias that different news platforms will come to the table with, right? But who is thinking about the filtering of that for kids? And, you know, there's a very, very small handful of kids news platforms out there. The Week Junior springs to mind. I know they've they've got a US edition as well. And I know that there was a trial happening in Australia for a kids news channel. Sky News are doing something in the UK as well. But 
I think it's a huge issue. The bias in all of this reporting, irrespective of whether it's health or politics or anything, is simply not being thought about in, in terms of the impact on kids. So I think it's a real problem. And, and ultimately, you know, whenever I try and think about this, I just always come back to the conclusion that whether or not they want to be seen as media owners, the platforms at the very least must have a responsibility in terms of at least how kids are seeing the news that is delivered on their platforms. Yep. And again, like if, if you look at where the digital privacy laws started, they started with kids because everyone accepted societally. This was an audience group that had to be protected. I do think that if we're going to see, you know, fairness and appropriateness and accuracy in news laws come into effect, I think it might start with the younger audiences first. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. You know, I'll tell you this incredibly qualitative, no <laughs> quantitative data example. So my daughter's 16. She has, you know, friends whose families we know and, you know, are friendly with. Not that we ever see them anymore in this current reality, but, you know, they still exist. We talk to them on the phone. Right. And, you know, she came to me a couple of weeks ago and she said, you know, she was concerned. She said, you know, friend XYZ, who we know, had shared a very declarative set of statements with her, my daughter, that were, you know, at the front end of QAnon conspiracy, frankly. I don't know any other way to classify it, right? Right, It it was about, it was essentially save the children, right? Right, yeah. And, you know, my daughter, because she lives in a highly, you know, politically radicalized house, (laughs) is attuned to that. But that is a very small number of houses. Right, 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 right. right. And so now you have, at an incredibly impressionable age, peer-to-peer sharing of... Stuff that is, yeah, maybe it's not the full on, you know, cannibalism mayhem of the far end of Q, but it's it's the entry point. And, you know, that gets you thinking we are we are in much deeper water than I I feel like we know. Mm -hmm. I think you're right. I think that like the long term impacts of this are are highly questionable. You know, I don't think they're fully knowable like at this stage. No, and no. I think this kind of, to some degree, you know, harks back to this, this same phenomenon of companies now being larger than countries, right? And, and when you look at like a lot of these privacy laws, and again, I, I mean, this sort of makes me sound like very pro-government for everything, but you know, when you've got institutional challenges and institutional blind spots in companies who can't build these protections, you need some mechanism, you know, to enforce them. And the challenge is that when the laws are simply not effective enough to create that change in companies, you've got an issue, right? Like, you know, when you see fines for breaches that are simply being built into companies' operating budgets, (laughs) you know, I mean, factually, that's that's what's happening now, yep. right? Like that mechanism doesn't work. So I don't know quite how that gets reset in a way that that is effectively, you know, delivering the kinds of protections that we need. And again, I just think ultimately, I get why platforms want to consider themselves content agnostic, you know, but there comes a certain point and scale where 
that responsibility is they are the only ones who can affect that responsibility. You know, yeah. and I think somewhere along the line, they go, okay, for at least some subset of the audience, we deem ourselves to be media owners and we are going to decide what content is yeah. going to be shown. Yeah. And they deem themselves to be media owners because they're media owners. Sure. I have not always sounded this big government <laughs> in my life. They have, and I won't mention anybody by name, but look, it has not worked. They have not done the task. They have not self-regulated. They have, you know, we're now through the third or fourth bite of the apple on some of these things, mm -hmm. and it is still not happening. Mm -hmm. You know, we're, we're banning hate groups six weeks after they've killed someone. It's not good enough. It's not even close to good enough. So yeah, I think it's, we sort of have come full circle. We started the pod with, wow, governments are starting to do some things they haven't done before. And mm. that's because to some extent, it's been proven, I would argue, that they need to. Mm. And I think that's a different space. All right, we're going to ask one more question then into the lightning round, which I know is already your favorite thing from the last time. <laughs> last question, we're going to try to bring up the tenor here that got a little dark, right, Jason? You're a little sad. Okay. What gives you the most reason for hope right now in, you know, could be personal life, could be work life, could be, you know, what's your light right now? I am a very, very optimistic person in general on the basis of everything that humanity has managed to get through, you know, over and, and, and generally speaking, survive over yeah. the last millennia. We do have a track record. Yeah, we do. We do. <laughs> we, 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 we hang around, you know, I mean, look, I am genuinely sort of very impressed by what I'm seeing around the discussion of sustainability, yeah. the discussion around privacy, and, you know, more and more investors starting to speak meaningfully around it. And, and I think that, you know, some of the principles that, that like Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett talk about in terms of how they invest, you are starting to see resonate a little bit um, in places that you hadn't before. I do think that like, you know, COVID has, has clearly been a, just a tragedy in so many ways and in so many places, but it is accelerating important areas like research into, you know, medicine and health and mm -hmm. education. And we need those things, you know, and, and perhaps, you know, we, we wouldn't have some of the breakthroughs that we are going to get to, we simply wouldn't have had without that impetus. So I think you don't get these kinds of tragedies without a counterbalancing set of things going on at the same time. So I'm hopeful. I'm optimistic. You know, I think it all might come together. I don't think we'll go through suddenly just a phase where everything is absolutely amazing. But I think we will we will make good progress over the next couple of years. So I'm, I'm actually feeling good, Robert. All right, I'll sign up for that. That was, as always, well articulated. You got me a little more hopeful, which I got news for you. I'm a bit of the <laughs> prince of darkness here. So, all right, here we go. Super quickly, for the past month or so of pandemic, couple months yep. of pandemic, best piece of content recently consumed? Could be anything. Well, there's several rap albums I could talk about, but I don't know how well that'll go down. With no, no, audience. we want it. We want but, it. We, but, we don't get okay, well, well, let me let me give you two very different get, things. Get so. Do you mind if I name a rival podcast? Is that okay? Absolutely. Well, okay. yeah. I mean, look, our scale, we don't worry about much. <laughs> I thought that Patrick O'Shaughnessy's interview with Matthew Ball, ah. which his podcast is called Invest Like the Best. So okay. Matthew Ball is an analyst, writes a lot about sort of games and, and, and yep. ABOD and things like that. Fantastic. Really good. Worth listening to. For all the rap fans out there, 
There is a mixtape by a UK rapper called Potter Paper. So choose either or both depending on your content preferences. I'm literally writing that down. That's why I'm not asking a question. Most enjoyable personal moment of pandemic. I think this is an obvious one. I got to say announcing our deal with Epic last week, just huge for, for so many amazing reasons and, and sort of vindicating everything we've been doing around kids' safety online. Huge. Yeah, I thought you might say that. Best social moment, personal social moment of the past couple months of pandemic. Has there been, so you guys have been allowed to like wander down the street and go to a pub. That's not quite where we are over here. Have you had one that sticks out? I mean, honestly, I haven't because I've been stuck in a deal for the last four months. <laughs> but actually, let me take that question somewhat literally. I think one of the most interesting social moments over the last few months was Twitter beginning to take a stance and actually flagging tweets yeah. as being misleading. I think that was a moment. Yeah, well, they're going to need to keep at it. Yeah. Hobby you've started since the pandemic. Handstands. Hey, really? Yeah, yeah, I can do them. Can you? That's pretty yeah. good. Could you do one I, at the beginning? I, yeah, I could sort of do them. I mean, I can do them a lot better now. Yeah. And I can do I can do handstands with like sort of little sort of push-ups. I'm just showing off at this point. I, this is really the, the the humble brag city. I love it. I love it. Wow, listen, I can't get close to a handstand, <laughs> let alone a handstand push-up. Although at my age, I think it's really highly unrecommended to go yeah, upside down in any way, shape, or form. The last question, I'm going to audible on this. I don't know if you'll like this. Obviously, you know, you're in the UK. The UK and the US have long held a deeply close relationship, both at a diplomatic level and I just think as a, as a people. Mm. What is, at this moment, the prevailing sentiment <laughs> of where we in America are? From the perspective of the UK? From I mean, the perspective of the UK. You know, it's, it's hard to figure out who's got the most dire predicament. <laughs> I mean, both countries have essentially, you know, personalities as head of state. There's some pretty uncanny similarities there, you know. No, for I think sure. people are, in general, losing a lot of faith in this generation of politicians. And, and I really, I genuinely, I don't think that's just, you know, folks in the UK looking at the US. I think across the board, you look at various governments' reactions to COVID. And yep. it has been, you know, charitably, I would describe it as shambolic. So look, I think everyone is hoping for a certain outcome in November. People just want 2020 to be over. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty simple. Like, I mean, I think if, if sort of a few countries got together and said, you know what, middle of November, we're just going to call it. You know, it's like, it's just take the rest of the year off. We're going to yeah. roll into yeah. January. Or maybe we get to Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is like, okay, fine, yeah. done. In youth sports in the US, we call that the mercy rule. <laughs> yeah. I think it's, you know, in baseball or softball, whatever, when you're losing by 10 or 15 runs, that's it. If it's the third I, inning, we're done. I hear you. I so hear I'm, you. With, I'm, I'm ready to mercy rule 2020. I'm with yeah, you. Yeah. I'm with yeah, you. Yeah. I've had enough. <laughs> I think Jason's on board with that too. As is always the case, you are awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been great to see you again. And I know we talked about this the last time and I'm still not allowed to enter your country. But uh, the next time I am, we are definitely sitting down and having a couple of Guinness. Well, it'll be absolutely my pleasure, Robert. And thank you very much for having me back again. Super enjoyable. And good luck with everything. Congratulations again. It's awesome. Thanks, Robert. Thanks so much for joining us for another episode of The Human Element. Remember, you can find us anywhere you find your pods. Please do subscribe, give us a like, send us a comment. We love all of those. In the meantime, please be well, 
Be just. And we'll be back to you next week. Thanks.